There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. Happy New Year, and thanks for joining us as we launch 2023 with a continued commitment to helping you improve your well-being, become even more empowered, and achieve more than you ever thought possible. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Ross Zabo. He's the co-author of the book, Behind the Happy Faces, Taking Charge of Your Mental Health, and author of The Kid's Book About Anxiety. As the wellness director at Gaffin Academy at UCLA, Ross is working on changing the way students learn about their mental health in grades six through 12. His company, Human Power Project, has also developed a curriculum used by more than a quarter million people of all ages. And he's one of the most sought after mental health speakers in the country. Ross Zabo, welcome to Next Steps Forward's first installment of 2023. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to kick this new year off. I love it. Happy New Year to you, sir. So your passion for mental wellness and mental health education is rooted in your own experiences growing up. Would you share your personal story with us from childhood to your eventual graduation from American University with a bachelor's degree in psychology? It's, a, it's quite a journey to, uh, to trace, but yeah, I could do it. Uh, I went through a lot of trauma as a kid between the ages of 11 and 12, kind of in an 18-month span. I visited my oldest brother in a psychiatric ward. I uh, lost two of my grandparents and had one of my best friends killed in a car accident. And that trauma, I always share first because it kind of set the stage for how I coped. I think a lot of times we focus so much on like diagnoses and disorders, we forget that oftentimes the groundwork for coping is set before that. And unfortunately for me, at a really young age, I learned to cope by hiding my emotions and making sure everyone else was okay. And then eventually I actually started drinking alcohol when I was around 12. So at 16, I started experiencing kind of the classic symptoms of bipolar disorder. I wouldn't sleep for like three or four days in a row, but I wasn't tired. My moods would change drastically where I'd get really angry, really violent. Then my moods would change again and I had no energy and couldn't get out of bed. And at 16, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But I always tell people, uh, you know, what happened before that diagnosis was more dangerous than the diagnosis. Uh, because before that diagnosis, I learned to drink before I learned to talk about my emotions. And by 16, I'd now been hiding feelings with immense trauma for five years. So as I went through ages 17 and 18, that's what I continued to do. I continued to drink and I continued to hide. In my senior year of high school, I was hospitalized for attempting to take my own life. Uh, at that time, if you were in my school, I wasn't really on anyone's radar. I was president of my class and a varsity basketball player and had the perfect college resume that everyone would hope to have. But inside, I was obviously fighting extremely crippling depression and all of the years of buildup of emotions that I hadn't released. Uh, so I, I was hospitalized in January of my senior year. Um, I was in the hospital for about two weeks. I got back out, went back to high school, and it was still a struggle. I, I think people don't often understand that when you're hospitalized for attempting to take your own life, the hospital is just an intervention. You don't get out and magically want to live again. You still have to deal with a lot of other things. Uh, I graduated 
high school and went to American University in Washington, D.C. Based on your uh, your promo here, it sounds like then I went on to graduate, but that's not actually what happened. Uh, I was at American the first time for two months and then had a major relapse with bipolar disorder and had to go home. And then I was hospitalized again. Um, and then I took a year off from school, uh, went to a local college in my house for three semesters, took another year off from school. And then four years after my original freshman year at American University, I went back to American University. And then about, I think, five semesters after that, I graduated. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a journey and, and it was really hard to understand my mental health. I think the biggest thing that changed for me the, the second time I went back to college was I hit a rock bottom moment where I really understood that these issues were real and that I needed to do something about them. And that while I could never change having bipolar disorder, I could change the, the coping mechanisms I was using because that's what was really plaguing me. You know, you mentioned there a moment ago, you hit rock bottom. And I've had a few other guests on, I won't say they've gone through a similar situation, but have gone through mental health issues, have been have, you know, diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Does it take hitting rock bottom to, you know, maybe see the forest or the trees concept and, and you know, realize like I've got to do something here to, to get straightened out? I don't think it has to. I, I do think there are certain people who are so stubborn or, you know, spin a wheel of other factors that for me, it took getting to a point of, of really almost losing my life. I was actually much closer to death at 22 than I was when I tried to take my own life because I stopped caring at 22. And, and for me, it was like that wake up call of like, hey, this isn't gonna turn around. But I, I do know so many other people who can start that work sooner and, and have success. So I never like to promote the concept that everyone needs to do it. Uh, it, it is my story but I think that uh, everyone's different and, and with more education and more awareness and other things like that, hopefully we can get people to a place where they're not needing to hit rock bottom to, to change. About a year and a half ago, we had a, a two-star general, um, Major General uh, Greg Martin on the show and decorated veteran, uh, served 30-ish years in the United States Army. Uh, and then towards the end of the year or end of his career, finally realized and was diagnosed with bipolar and was then relieved of his duty and his command, uh, which is unfortunate. Things have since changed in the military. But to your point earlier, you know, you kind of go three, four days without sleep, and it's just sort of like a high-functioning stage where you go up and down. But when you're up, you're up. Yeah, and and that up is uh, often problematic. And I think that's what people don't often understand is that being in mania is often a state of delusion. And so you think everything makes sense. You think everything comes together. But mania is, is very frequently a, a, a dangerous place because you're not making sense to others. And while you have a lot of energy and can get a lot accomplished, you can make some really dangerous decisions in mania. How common is bipolar disorder? And is there an average age range in which it emerges? Bipolar disorder affects probably around 2% of the, the country. And you know, 75% of all mental health disorders uh, manifest before the age of 18. So it, it, the time frame for most mental health disorders to occur is in adolescence. Beyond that, there are people who may be diagnosed later in life because they normalized the behaviors and patterns and everyone adapted to it, and they didn't realize that that's what they had. But for the most part, uh, bipolar disorder is not a common mental health disorder. 
uh, in terms of it affecting 2% of the population. And it does usually manifest in, in adolescence. And I know there are misconceptions about bipolar disorder, perhaps because of its name, you know, people may think there are only two phases of it, manic behavior or severe depression, but we know it's way more than that. Can you describe the range of symptoms associated with bipolar disorder? So yeah, I'm not a, a, a psychiatrist. I'll, I'll do my best here. The, the main emotions are extreme mania or depression. There are certain people who just have mania. There are certain people who just have depression. There are different types of bipolar disorder that I am not going to go into because that would require the diagnostic statistics manual. But the, the main point you're trying to make here is that it's not just a battle between the two poles of mania or depression. For some people, it is mainly depression with some swings to, to mania. And then for other people, it is mainly mania with some swings to depression. I think the, the most important factor to keep in mind for people is that it's not being moody and it's not having mood swings. It's having uncontrollable situations in your life that aren't in that normal range of emotions. You mentioned earlier that you visited your oldest brother in the psychiatric ward of the University of Pennsylvania Hospital when you were 11 years old. Did your family have a history of mental illness beyond your brother? And was he also diagnosed with bipolar disorder? My brother was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. What happened to him was he was in his uh, sophomore year at the University of Pennsylvania and had a massive relapse, has had a massive episode actually, not a relapse, um, of bipolar disorder where he couldn't, he didn't sleep for about six days. And he was walking around campus trying to teach classes and singing loudly in stairwells. So it was his first episode of bipolar disorder. My family does have a really long history of mental health disorders. Three of my uh, grandparents were alcoholics. And then on both sides of my family, we have anxiety disorders, bipolar disorder, clinical depression, and a lot of addiction. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was uh, in the time in the 1900s, the, the, the capital of the industrial world with steel and zinc and coal and all kinds of anything else you could imagine, <laughs> railroads, all of it. And so I think a lot of my family members were able to hide their mental health disorders by going to the factory every single day and having that same routine. And you know, it, it wasn't something that was talked about, but when I was like 27 years old, I remember asking my parents, hey, did anyone else in our family have this? And about like, I don't know, 18 minutes later, they stopped naming people who had <laughs> mental health issues. Well, and to your point, you know, 100 years ago, not even 100 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, mental health issues, bipolar disorder, anything like that were taboo. You didn't, like yeah. you, said, you, you didn't talk about them. Uh, Post-traumatic stress for veterans, you know, used to call it shell shock after World War One and World War II. And I've said throughout the, the, the podcast and throughout COVID, the one positive thing that COVID has done, I think, is put a spotlight on mental health in a positive way. It's got us talking about the kitchen table. It's got us talking about it publicly on podcasts and in news stories and things like that. And so as crappy as COVID was, you know, I think this is the one positive thing that can help us, you know, moving forward. Definitely. So you talked about your career, I'll call it an American university. Finishing your BA must've been an amazing feeling. Was that a real triumph for you? It was a. It was really meaningful to me, especially because I had gone through so much. When I left there at 18, I really didn't know if I would ever go back to college again. And I really wasn't sure what was going to happen to me. And so to have the chance to go back four years later and then graduate, you know, a couple, couple years after that, 
was was a huge source of i guess just pride and and victory in some ways because mental health can take away so many years of your life and it makes you feel so terrible about yourself you know i hated myself so much and watched all my other friends graduate from college and watched everyone have what i thought was the path i would have and so having a chance to just get that degree and come back from everything i came back from felt really 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 great my whole family obviously was at graduation and everyone wanted to to celebrate the 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 journey to get there and an amazing journey it was and congratulations to you for for finishing that cuz to your point it was not easy for you and i want to highlight to our listeners and viewers you know, you talked about you having the perfect resume to go to college, class president, varsity basketball, you end up going to American University. Your brother goes to the University of Pennsylvania. Two phenomenal academic institutions, not just in the United States, but globally. And I just want people to realize that mental health challenges can happen to anybody. Uh, you know, it's the person next door, it's you, it's a relative, it's a friend. And so to, to your point earlier as well, don't keep things boxed up, you know, talk about it, reach out to folks. And so I just want everyone to, to realize that it can happen to anybody. So you finished an American university, you went on to earn your master's degree in educational psychology. Was that something you decided you wanted to do early on, or did you make that decision as you were working through your bachelor's degree? That was not a linear path. I actually uh, graduated from American university in 2002, uh, summer 2002. I didn't get my BA in educational psychology until 2017. Uh, the, 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 the thing there was I started a school in 2016, and as I was starting a school, I was realizing that I needed another degree in terms of, of psychology to really be effective at the school. Educational psychology is the psychology of how people learn and how to make lessons stick. And so I uh, got the, the master's in educational psychology after you know starting the school and saying like, hey, what would really enhance my role as a teacher here. I'm fascinated that you published a book before serving several years in the Peace Corps. And we'll talk about Behind Happy Faces shortly, <laughs> but where did you go during your Peace Corps service and what did you do there? I served in Botswana. I lived in Maun, Botswana, which is in the northern part of Botswana. A lot of people know Maun because it's in the Okavanga Delta and that's where a lot of safaris uh, take off from. So in the Peace Corps, I actually worked at a center for people with disabilities, and it was the largest center for people with disabilities in the country. And uh, I was mainly there to help put in systems that could make the, make the services at the center better. So one of the biggest things we did was we created the first database for people with disabilities in the country. This uh, center I worked at had been in existence since the mid 80s and they had kept a paper record of every single person they'd ever seen but they didn't have a computer database they did have computers and so we took all of the paper records and it took about six months and entered them into a database to see where what disabilities were most common what the causes were everything else and it was a really meaningful thing the the government of botswana now has that database and they still use it to this day and uh, the center I worked at had a, a bunch of different treatment centers and a school for students with disabilities to learn different skills so that they could back, go back to their villages and, and find employment. And do people serving the Peace Corps get to choose where they serve? And what drew you there? 
they they get to serve they get to choose where they serve now so now when you apply you can choose a specific country and and go through the process the application process to the peace corps is really tiring and and it's long uh because they want to make sure they're not investing all this money in people and then having them um just kind of come home the reason i joined the reasons i joined one was i always wanted to live abroad and learn a different language and have an opportunity to give back in some way uh, but the reality is i started sharing my story with mental health when i was 17 and by the age of 30 while i'd already written a book and spoken over a million people and done all these other things it was really really damaging to my mental health and i needed uh, a com- to do something completely different and the, the peace corps was just a really amazing opportunity to to do something different how did that service and that timing of the country change not only you how you looked at things when you got back home. You get a really good perspective on America, what the world perceives about America and America's influence when you live abroad. So I got to really see a lot of the role Americans can play in different countries. The the unofficial thing that happens in the Peace Corps is you are ambassadors to America, because you're going to be the only American that most of these people you interact with will ever get to know. They might see tourists, they might see other people, but they're never going to call that person a friend or get to hear the real deal and situation in America. And obviously, the perceptions of America vary. Uh, there are a lot of people who love the this country, and there are a lot of people who have different opinions on it. But getting to know people in general breaks down barriers and allows for open communication and connection. And so I think that, you know, I learned a lot about myself in that as well. My, my service in the Peace Corps was pretty typical. I had running water most of the time. I had electricity most of the time, but I did cook every meal from scratch and I washed my clothes by hand and had a much slower uh, experience than our fast paced technology life over here. So I think one of the biggest things that I took from it too was just a sense of gratitude for how to slow down your life and how to to be present and how to really take care of yourself when you don't have the amenities that uh, we have here. And you talk about slowing down your life. One thing, at least I know I did, but I think a lot of folks globally did during the pandemic was your lives were slowed down just because you had no choice. And I think it was a bit of a reset for us socially in terms of, you know, I didn't have to commute four hours a day round trip to New York City and spend more time with my kids and things like that. I'm curious to see if that stays as is, and that's the new norm for us? Or if all of a sudden like, oh, I've got three years to make make up for and, and let's go, go, go. So I think that'll be the next uh, great human uh, study coming up here. So we'll see. You noticed barriers that were keeping people from getting the mental health information they needed. What were those barriers and what caused them? I think the biggest barriers that, that people face in terms of getting mental health care that they need is just a lack of education and a lack of understanding on on what mental health is. I mean, we do know that there's a a major lack of mental health services in this country. It it doesn't really matter if you have millions of dollars or no money, finding a a mental health professional can be almost impossible in our society. But beyond that is is a major lack of education. We learn about physical health from pre-kindergarten through the rest of our lives. There are physical health programs at companies and corporations and everything for adults, but we don't really talk about mental health until somebody has a problem. 
And if you wait to talk about mental health until someone has a problem, then they're just going to be reacting to that situation instead of being proactive about it as they would their physical health. So, you know, throughout my life, I've really focused on what's next for mental health education. And in the beginning, there were no large scale mental health presentations and there was no awareness. And so I worked really hard to create programs and different opportunities to have awareness for mental health. And then after that, I realized there was no curriculum. And so I developed a curriculum in 2013 to teach mental health the same way you would teach physical health. And then after having the opportunity to be a founding faculty member at Geffen Academy at UCLA, which is a school for students in grades six through 12, I realized that the entire education system needs to change. And the, the biggest way to change that is to actually be at a school and showing people how to do it versus coming in from outside and saying like, hey, this is how you can do it. So each summer at Geffen Academy at UCLA, we host the Mental Health Teacher Training Institute to teach other teachers how to do what we're doing at our school. Now, you just mentioned teaching mental health the same way you teach physical health. That seems so sensible and logical and easy, right? Why has mental health gotten so little attention in our school curriculum for so long? There are a lot of different factors of why it hasn't happened. I think one, people aren't even sure exactly how to do that. So what we do at Geffen Academy at UCLA is we teach a clear definition of what mental health is. If you don't have that clear definition of what mental health is, you can think it's many different things. Most people, when they hear the words mental health, tend to think it's somebody who has a problem. Uh, but the actual definition of mental health is how you address challenges in your life. It's not having a problem at all. It's how you take care of yourself, how you cope, how you communicate, um, what you do to, to create habits that support yourself every day. So having that clear definition is really important. And I don't think in the past that we even had a clear definition of what mental health was. But beyond that, this line of we have to teach mental health the same way we teach physical health has become kind of a buzzword, and there are actual ways to do it. You can't just keep saying it. So much like people understand there are differences for physical health challenges, like there's a difference between a sprained ankle and a broken leg, having the cold, having a flu, having cancer, having diabetes, we need to do the same thing with mental health and teach that there's a difference between everyday stress and having an anxiety disorder or feeling depressed versus having depression and actually giving a vocabulary and mental health literacy to people. And then focusing on coping skills, how to support each other, how to do things that, that really manage your mental health from there. But I think the, the real reason that it hasn't been implemented in schools is because schools can't be therapeutic centers. And people have been hesitant to touch mental health because they don't want to have schools become therapy centers. And that's why at my school, we take a public health approach. And we talk to students about this the same way you would talk about physical health. So instead of treating their physical health, which we don't do at school, we talk about, hey, this is the brain. This is what it does. These are words you can use to describe it. This is what mental health is. This is how you can support a friend. This is what to do in a situation. And I think that's a, a bigger important piece is, is taking a public health approach versus a therapeutic approach. And how did the COVID pandemic affect children's mental health during the period in which they were kept home from school and those effects vary by age? The youth mental health crisis took a huge jump around 2012. Anyone who looks at the data can see that isolation, loneliness, anxiety, and depression went kind of off the charts in, in 2011, 2012. 
And then there was another increase in it during the, the pandemic, uh, suicide ideation, suicide rates, everything like that. Um, well, suicide rates actually went down during the pandemic, but um, ideation and all of those things went up. What we know is that once students weren't allowed to interact with each other or go to school or have that routine, they were often left with themselves and being left with themselves was isolating and lonely and, and cut them off from what they really needed, which was to interact and be around each other. I think no matter what, when we look at these statistics, young people are tired of hearing about the mental health crisis. They actually want to know what to do about it. So media and everyone else tends to focus on look at all these statistics. But when I talk to kids every single day, they're like, I don't I don't care about the statistics, like teach me what to do about it. And I think that's a, a really critical piece. Now that they're back in school and those days seem to be a fading memory, are there any lasting mental health effects or is it just teach me what to do? Don't give me a bunch of stats. There are definitely a lot of lasting effects, especially for the kids who went through a critical period of brain growth during the pandemic because they didn't necessarily learn how to regulate their emotions or how to take care of themselves. And so a lot of schools are still seeing students interacting in ways that uh, are just kind of extreme or are on the, the fringes of, of really just a dysfunctional behavior. And in schools that are able to understand that and support students and be patient with them, it can, it can make a big difference. But in schools where it's not, then it, it often leads to just kind of punitive measures because again, schools don't have time to necessarily be therapeutic or forgiving uh, with behavioral outbursts or, or, or situations. And how did the pandemic change the way we address children's mental health issues? This is a good question. I don't know that it did. Uh, you know, I, I, there's still such a massive lack of mental health professionals in our country, and it's really hard to get help. I think we're more aware, 100%, of being like, hey, this is an issue, and, and trying to address it, and trying to talk about it, and seeing what we can do. But in terms of getting people more help, I think online therapy really increased. And I think that's much more accessible than it ever has been. And you have more people coming up with different solutions that are uh, that are helpful. But I think that, that for your, the true answer to your question is, we're actually trying to figure out how to respond to children's mental health. We've been talking to Ross Sabo, and we'll be right back after a short break. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today, as we open the new year, is Ross Zabo. Ross is the wellness director at Geffen Academy at UCLA. He's the co-author of the book, Behind Happy Faces, Taking Charge of Your Mental Health, and author of The Kid's Book About Anxiety. He's working to change the way students learn about their mental health in grades six through 12. And his company, Human Power Project, has developed a curriculum used by more than a quarter million people of all ages. Ross, Obviously, you've been at the forefront of this issue for a long time. Did your early efforts to introduce mental health curriculum meet resistance during that time? Did people say, we don't really need what you're doing? Or was there a case of educators just jumping on board from the beginning? That's a really good question as well. You know, I think what happened in the beginning was I came up with this idea of like, hey, we should be teaching mental health in schools the same way we teach physical health. And there was some resistance. And, And like I said earlier, the resistance was well, schools can't be therapeutic centers. And so it did take a little bit of time to show that this could be done. I followed a pattern that anyone does when they're trying to do something new is use existing systems to uh, show that this could be done instead of creating a whole new system. So what I did was I got some of the top colleges and universities in the country and some of the top high schools and middle schools in the country to use the curriculum. And obviously I just gave it to them for free and talked them through how to do it. And then got their endorsement to say like, hey, this really does work. Uh, There is data here that shows that it works. And uh, that makes it easier to roll things out. When you try something new, it's it's really important to follow the, uh, the systems that are in place instead of creating a whole new wheel. And that broke down people's uh, hesitancy pretty quickly. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is people want to know that this can be implemented easily and doesn't require all this extra training and all this extra focus and all this other things because schools are already overwhelmed. And so the challenge was, how do you create a curriculum that can be easy to implement and doesn't require mass amounts of training? Uh, And you can do that with a public health approach to mental health instead of a, a therapeutic approach. We've been talking about throughout the show, but now please... Describe Behind Happy Faces curriculum curriculum to us. 
Behind Happy Faces has two different options. One option is an eight core lesson option, and the other option is an 18 lesson that's that's the advanced package. The core lesson really does focus first on, uh, and all of the lessons are 45 minutes each, uh, because it's really important to have that amount of time in a classroom to to have this 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 curriculum stick. It can't just be something that's a one-off and they never do again. It's got to be repetitive, and it has to give it enough time to have that conversation. So the eight lessons really do start first with a definition of mental health and engaging students on what they think of mental health and why they think that, with also uh, programs and and interactive activities about why people don't talk about mental health and how to break that down. The second lesson is an opportunity for connection for students to see in the classroom how many other people are going through similar things. And then the third lesson focuses on that mental health literacy piece, how to talk about mental health, how to understand that there are different mental health challenges and how to look about look at mental health uh, on a spectrum the same way you would look at physical health. So sometimes mental health spectrum when people think about it, they think you're sane or you're not, but that's not how we look at physical health. With physical health, we tend to choose an issue and look at functionality. So if somebody tears their ACL, then they might need surgery and they might be not able to walk. And then they might need constant assistance, like therapy, everything else until they can walk a little more. And then they might need some help until they can run and jump and do everything again. And then they kind of go back up the spectrum where like they don't have any issues. It's important to do the same thing with mental health. So if you take something like stress, do you just need some help? Do you need constant assistance? Are you unable to balance your mental health? And really just giving practical ways for students to think about mental health and frame it. And then we focus on coping mechanisms and behavior change and how uh, it's good to understand the difference between effective and ineffective coping. Then there are uh, a couple of lessons on how to help a friend because the reality is while we love to say that this teen mental health crisis is so big and no one's talking about it, young people are on the front lines of crisis management every single night. They are talking their friends down from taking their own lives. They are having conversations uh, about really deep mental health issues and disorders. And if we are not giving them the actual guidance and advice on how to do that, we are failing them because they live in a persistent state of trauma from not knowing if their friends are gonna die from making promises that they can't keep, from doing all kinds of things. And so those are the, the core lessons of Behind Happy Faces. The advanced lessons get into the differences between uh, feeling nervous versus having an anxiety disorder, feeling depressed versus having clinical depression, going over the main mental health disorders, a lot of lessons on how to utilize good stress in your life instead of just seeing all stress as being bad, and then lessons on substance use prevention and other aspects that that can really benefit their adolescent development. I love what you're doing because it's so important in today's world, because for me personally, I think if, if you can train, I'll say kids generically, you know, how to talk about and react to their mental health and their well-being, somebody your point about teaching like physical health, as you get older, you're going to understand it better. You're going to be able to cope with different scenarios better. You know, and now that I'm in my early 50s, I know that I can't have, you know, three glasses of wine and not see any effects on if I don't go to the gym or something like that. So, you know, treating your mental health the way you treat your physical health should just become part of your your normal routine, for lack of a better word. And just, you you know what you have to do to, to keep yourself mentally healthy, physically healthy. Um, I'm hoping we go through this, uh, I'll call it a revolution, similar to in the 80s where, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and President Reagan had this whole big exercise campaign where we knew it was 
you know, you don't smoke and drink three cups of coffee every day. You need to exercise. In other words, you have heart disease and things like that. And so um, I'm fascinated and love the work that you're doing. And having been used by so many people now, again, more than a quarter million, I'm, in, I'm sure that there's data about the areas where it's most effective. Where does it make the biggest difference in improving mental health and why? The data is a really important piece. And remember, we're taking a public health approach here, not a therapeutic approach. So the measures from a public health perspective are, can people talk about mental health more easily and, and in a way that they can understand? Do they have that self-efficacy? And the data shows that there's higher levels of self-efficacy in being able to manage mental health. There's less fear of seeking help. There's less judgment of other people who seek help. And I think the, the most important piece for me is that it normalizes mental health for them in a way that is similar to their physical health. That's the, the most important piece to me. You know, I think that we've seen stigma go down pretty significantly over the past two decades, which is great, but now we need those skills to actually be able to take care of ourselves. And so the data on the curriculum is, is really clear in, in all of those measures. And does the curriculum take the place of counseling services or suicide prevention programs that are in place elsewhere? No, it, it definitely can't do that. If it could do that, uh, I probably wouldn't just be on the show. I'd be in like sold out stadiums, like fixing, <laughs> From the fixing, everyone's, <laughs> fixing everyone's issues. What it does do is, again, brings that, that critical piece of education and understanding what mental health is, how you can work on it, how you can support other people. But if you are someone who has a mental health disorder or a condition that needs more treatment or more attention, then it, you still need to go to a therapist or a psychiatrist or someone who can help you more in depth. If you think about the physical health comparison to this in schools, we talk endlessly in schools about nutrition and obesity and how to take care of yourself. And even though we've been doing that for decades, the obesity rate in this country is higher than it's ever been. So there is still a level of personal responsibility in mental health, much like there is physical health. And look, you can, you can trace environmental aspects for why obesity, obesity is so big. We eat foods in this country that are banned in other countries. You know, when my friends come over from Europe and their kids eat some of the American food for the first time, they're like, what is even in this food? Um, what are you doing here? You can look at socioeconomic status because there are, you know, the rate of poverty, the rate of people in lower socioeconomic status has gone up. So like that also has to be factored into mental health. Even if we're teaching about mental health and there's personal responsibility, there's still going to be environmental factors happening in any country that might make achieving mental health really, really difficult. Your identity markers, all of those things play into it. And so, you know, it's, it's not a cure-all. It's an awareness piece, but let's keep in mind that even in that personal responsibility, there are factors that are really difficult for people. Well, I think you and I should make a New Year's resolution where our goal in 2023 is to get you into those sold out stadiums. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what we can do on that. Your second book, a kid's book about anxiety was published in 2019. Some people may say, you know, kids have it so easy these days, really have to worry about. What are some of the causes of anxiety for children and young people and how does anxiety affect their lives? The rates of anxiety and depression have gone up significantly over the past decade, but massively after the, during the pandemic. 
One thing that I always emphasize is there's a huge difference between feeling nervous and actually having an anxiety disorder. And in this massive mental health awareness piece that we've been doing, we haven't been educating people on that difference. So I do think the anxiety rates are going up. I think the biggest cause of anxiety is social media and technology. I don't think that's controversial. I don't think anyone's going to be like, no, you're wrong. And I do think that for young people, in terms of that social media and technology, they have access to information they've never had before. So they know about every single crisis happening in the world. And not only do they know about every single crisis happening in the world, but they're constantly compared to all these other people on social media in ways that are really detrimental. And then beyond that, there is this, what I like to call the college application industrial complex, where now you can't even just go to college, you have to apply and go to the best college, but the best colleges now have a 2% acceptance rate. And you start thinking about it and worrying about it if you're at you know, a decent school at a really young age, and it's adding pressure in ways that like, we never had to deal with. So all those things are raising anxiety. I, and I think no matter what the cause is, it's really important to build skills and help young people understand like, hey, if you start managing this at a young age, like you said earlier, you're building the neural habits, the neural pathways and the habits that can help support you throughout your life, but you're never gonna be able to take away the causes of what's leading to stress or anxiety. And it seems like, I could be wrong, as we're progressing through the, our society, they're getting worse. They're not, they're not actually going down. Yeah, I'm gonna call an audible here and go a little bit off our prepared Q&A session, if that's okay. You mentioned a few things there in terms of the stress kids go through, getting the best colleges, social media, and being compared to their peers, et cetera. You and I got connected from an article I read, I've got over here uh, in Teen Vogue, and no, it's not something I read regularly. Uh, it was just something that showed up in my, my mental health Google feed. But you wrote an op-ed in November called, Perfectionism is Eroding How Young People Think About Mental Health. And I had a guest on last week, uh, also talking about her post-traumatic stress injury, and we're talking about perfectionism. And I referenced how, you know, 30 years ago, little girls were looking at Barbie and that's how they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to look. And so it was ingrained in their brain from five years old, what society expected you to be like. Now, thankfully, finally, Mattel is making different colors and sizes and shapes Barbies. <clears throat> Excuse me. But maybe you can talk a little bit about your op-ed in terms of how perfectionism, perfectionism is wearing on these kids at earlier ages, not even just high school when you're preparing for to go to college, um, but, but at younger ages. With the rise of awareness around mental health and now on social media, there are so many influencers focusing on skills you can use for mental health. There's somehow, we, we went from mental health being like this bad thing where like, you know, people couldn't manage it. It was just depression and everything else to mental health means you have to sleep eight hours a night and not have stress and work out and do all these things. And now what is happening is a lot of young people are seeing these apps and these influencers and everyone else saying like, this is what you do for your mental health. And it's having a reverse effect where they think if they're not doing this, then they're failing. It's really important to emphasize that mental health is not about being perfect. It's about having the skills to use when you need to use them and having varying success with it. And, and that is also the definition we use for physical health. Physical health isn't about being perfect. It is saying, like you said earlier, knowing not to drink three cups of coffee a day and knowing what to eat, but you don't always do that. 
I ate probably 20 cookies a day <laughs> for the last, like, I don't know how long and knew I shouldn't. And then, you know, I came home from visiting family and was like, oh man, I have to like rein this in and get back to the gym and everything else. So we're doing a disservice to young people by promoting this concept that mental health is, again, either being perfect or having everything figured out. Mental health is about knowing what skills you need to, knowing what skills to use and when to use them. And much like everything else on social media, kids are seeing uh, other people doing things or saying things and they think like, oh, that's what I have to do. But what they really have to do is be themselves and take account for where they are and try to move forward from that place. And we all know that being themselves is not easy in today's world. With a spotlight on everything you do, you look, you eat, you touch where you are on social media, how many likes you have, how many followers you have, et cetera. Uh, the pressures are way different than I had. I'm significantly older than you. And so uh, I guess that's also a big reason why I love the work that you're doing, because again, if we can equate this to to teaching physical health and then show them or create a, a blueprint or roadmap in terms of time together, physical health, mental health, you mentioned nutrition, you mentioned sleep, all those things make for a call a well-rounded, healthy individual. And so you can't just compartmentalize each individual, one of those programs or platforms because they're all interrelated. Without physical health, it's going to affect your nutrition and then you're going to feel bad, you're going to be fat and that's going to affect your, your mental health. And then you go into depression and et cetera. And so it's a vicious cycle. So being able to tie them all together and to educate people unilaterally in terms of all these pieces together need to be a program, not just one individual component, I think it is key and critical. And so I love, again, the message you're getting out there. Thank you. So we talked about anxiety rates going up among children and teens. Is that a trend that we're getting used to now, or are we just more attuned to it given a post-COVID you know, new world order? I often wonder what, what's the ceiling on these rates going up? Where does it stop? Where does it come back down? And like I said earlier, I think the causes of this and what's contributing to it isn't going away. In some ways, technology is only getting more invasive. And as we go through our lives, there's going to be more creative ways for it to help us. Uh, and, and in the helping of us, a lot of times, it's just going to continue to raise anxiety. So I don't, I don't have the answer to this one, to be honest with you. I think that, uh, again, much like I've been saying before, the rates, uh, we can't just keep focusing on the statistics. We're going to have to actually focus on the solutions. And the solutions are putting technology away when we can. The solutions are learning breathing techniques, learning how to center yourself, learning how to uh, focus on issues when you do have anxiety, learning how to connect with people, uh, really taking steps to, to manage it. And that's where I think we have to put the emphasis because seemingly the causes and the statistics are going to continue to go up. And let's, let's switch our focus on what can actually help people. I totally agree. And before you said, you know, the kids don't want the stats, they want to know how to get better. Yeah. And to that point, how does a parent know what are the signs if a child is just having growing pains or if they have a more serious issue with anxiety or depression? The most important thing to keep in mind as a parent is when your child stops doing the things they typically do for a certain amount of time, that is a, a, a time to check in. So let's say you have a kid who stops hanging out with their friends and says they don't like their friends. Even if it's one day, check in with them. Say like, hey, what's going on? It's normal to you know go through many different kinds of friendships in your life. That makes a lot of sense. 
but uh, the conversation about it also has to be normal. What we tend to do a lot of times is just give kids space and be like, okay, well, they're just having a hard time, so I'm not gonna bother them. I used to say to people, you know, suicide was this process of like, you go through depression, it lasts for months, and then eventually you get to a point where you think, okay, uh, the world would be better off without me. You're in a really deep state of pain and, and you take your own life, but that's not happening anymore. A, a good percentage of suicides are just impulsive. And it's hard being a parent today. It's scary being a parent today because you just don't know uh, what's happening or, or how you can do it. And that's why it's really important from the youngest age possible to start normalizing these conversations to see, hey, you used to do this thing, you're not doing this thing. Are you okay? And really trying to let them know that it's okay to talk about these issues from a young age because the fear, the embarrassment, the shame starts in, in, in elementary school or even pre-kindergarten. And really normalizing that from a young age is, is important. Now you talk about, you know, talking to kids at an early age, you know, my wife and I have two teenage daughters. My son is 10. What's an appropriate age for parents to talk to their kids about mental health in general and suicide prevention specifically? Starting at age five, even modeling mental health before that. So as kids, our, our brains are turning on and they're young, having family things that you do to connect yourselves and showing them how you take care of your mental health. If that's going for a walk as a family, if that's taking a trip as a family, it's being deliberate to say, hey, I do this because it helps take care of my mind. It helps take care of what I do and, and what I go through. And it makes me feel better. And then when these issues start popping up, the, the younger that a kid, like the, my kid's book, a kid's book about anxiety is written for students at ages uh, five to eight because that's when they can start understanding the difference between feeling nervous and actually having an anxiety disorder, where they can start understanding the difference between feeling sad and having it be so severe that they can't do anything about it. So it's not only important to normalize the conversations about it, but it's really important to model the behavior you wanna see from them. The largest form of education for the rest of our lives is always gonna be example. It's not gonna be books. It's not gonna be TikTok. It's not gonna be these other things. It's gonna be example. And if you can set up routines and patterns in your family and stick to them and have boundaries around them, because, you know, in some ways, a young person's goal in life is to just manipulate you into no longer having boundaries. You have to stick to the boundaries. You have to keep pushing for it. And that those two, that combination, talking about it and modeling it can make a difference. It doesn't fix everything. Again, it's not a cure all, but it helps. It sounds like, you know, our middle daughter talking about manipulating to, to extend their boundaries. Um, you know, I guess talking about them in early age, I never thought about that before uh, until the pandemic. And ironically enough, in January 2020, I started a new nonprofit focused on mental health awareness. And so I had more time during the pandemic. So we just started doing research on mental health, just articles on Google. But that's when I started seeing things on kids' mental health and teens' mental health and mm you know, to your point, thank God it's not gonna be TikTok, but how much that weighed on them. And so that's when I started to talk to my teenage daughters because they were at the time uh, a freshman and a junior in high school. And so very transformative years, obviously. Um, my oldest graduated high school during COVID and so just changed her life forever. So I agree with you, talk to them as early as you can. And I encourage folks to get your book. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. 
Are there certain hallmarks of mental health school programs that we can identify to give us a sense of whether they're effective? There's a really interesting situation happening in schools right now. So what schools have been doing for the past like 15 years is social emotional learning. Social emotional learning is emotional intelligence, naming emotions, identifying emotions, uh, understanding emotions, seeing emotions. And it's really, really, really impactful. There is a certain age, probably around grades four to six, where talking about emotions has consequences. And you might get made fun of, you might lose your friends, you might have a lot of things happen. And that's where mental health education has to be partnered with social emotional learning to really encourage that work on actual mental health skills, coping skills, mental health literacy, the differences between, again, emotions and mental health disorders and really growing it from there. So the hallmarks of what is critical mental health education is that clear definition of what mental health is, mental health literacy, coping skills, how to support yourself and how to support others. And Ross, we have just two minutes left. If some in our audience wants to learn more about the Human Power Project or get the Behind Happy Faces mental health curriculum into their local schools, how should they go about it? Easiest place to go is just my website, rossabo.com. That'll take you to my company, which is Human Power Project. Uh, you can also go to humanpowerproject.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media. The, the social media that I use the most is Instagram. Um, and again, it's just my name, Ross Abo. Uh, so thank you so much. Coming soon to large stadiums near you, Ross Zabo. <laughs> Ross, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to have these conversations, to do the work your organization's doing, and to really support people because it's, uh, it's a big topic, and a lot of people don't necessarily know exactly what to do with it. And it's conversations like this and advocates like yourself who are moving this forward and, and bringing it into homes in important ways. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's very important information, very important topic, obviously. Again, thanks for our listeners for being here. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.